Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Speak Environment podcast. I'm very excited. I think I have an exciting and interesting episode planned for you all today. It's been a bit since the last episode, but we're back and we are rounding out 2021 with a great episode. So this episode idea actually came to me about a month and a half ago. I was sitting in one of my classes that I had just finished for my fall term at Oregon State University. The class was called Endangered Species, Society, and Sustainability, and it's called like FW350 for my OSU people. Um, it covered all of those topics and more, and it was actually a really excellent class. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you're going to take it, if you're an Oregon State student, take it with Professor Ivan Arismendi. He was great. So one week in this class, we were talking about a few popular hypotheses that science has come up with regarding how climate change will impact like species on Earth, right? And one of these hypotheses was really interesting to me, and it says that like certain species phenologies will change with the warming climate. So climate change impacts certain species differently than others. And that's kind of where the idea for this um, episode was born. And if you're asking yourself what the heck is phenology and what is a species phenology, then you have come to the right place because that is what we're talking about today. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the first question for today's episode is what is phenology? Phenology is the study of cyclical events in nature, and honestly, you're probably more familiar with this concept than you may realize. A common way that we talk about phenology in everyday life is cycles, the cycle of seasons, the cycle of animal and plant life cycles, lunar cycles, tidal cycles, etc. Um, we actually even, some aphorisms about life can be extended to meet this definition. You know, we say things like, life is a series of ups and downs or ebbs and flows. Really, we're talking about cyclical things in nature. So today I wanna to spend some time talking about three main case studies of phenology at work. I think these three case studies that we're gonna talk about today are very interesting. They are all three different species that we're gonna talk about, but they're all linked um, in the sense of reproductive cycles. We're gonna talk about re reproductive cycles of all three of these species. So without further ado, let's jump into this first case study and it is the Great Barrier Reef spawning event. I picked this case study to talk about first because it's actually the most recent example of phenology in action. So the Great Barrier Reef has a spawning event that happens every year on or after the first full moon in the month of November. The first full moon of November happened on the 19th and sure enough, the spawning event for the Great Barrier Reef began on the 19th and lasted until November 23rd. So the spawning event happens at night, obviously, when the water is illuminated in the light of the full moon and multiple species of corals on the Great Barrier Reef synchronize the release of their sperm and egg into the water. So uh, if you were swimming around on the Great Barrier Reef during the spawning event, the water would essentially resemble the water in a snow globe if you shook it all up and all of those little snow particles are disturbed and they're all floating all around the snow globe. Billions of sperm and egg cells float to the water surface where they fertilize and eventually develop into larvae that eventually settle on the reef and form new coral colonies. I think that is so cool or totally not cool if you're not into the idea of swimming in a sea of coral sex cells. I get it. <laughs> but the key thing here that relates to phenology in this scenario is the moon and the temperature of the ocean. Though there are always little variations year to year, the lunar cycle seems to be the largest factor that the corals respond to, and it triggers the spawning event to happen on time like clockwork every year. There is a marine biologist, his name is Garrett Phil Gareth Phillips, and he was interviewed in quite a few articles that I read preparing for today's uh, episode. And he notes, I'm quoting, 
Coral spawning generally happens two to six days after a full moon in November when the water temperature has been over 27 degrees Celsius a month prior. And for all of my fellow Americans out there, 27 degrees Celsius is 80 degrees Fahrenheit. I just had to Google it. Anyways, Gareth was actually out on the reef during the spawning event this year and he got to witness it happen. And in the interviews that I uh, read, like articles, he was reflecting on the fact that like different species of corals did their spawning in waves. And he says that it is a sign of hope that the Great Barrier Reef is doing well and actually recovering from record heat waves in the last decade that killed about 14% of the world's coral. There's also another really cool thing about corals that is helping in coral conservation efforts. So to paint the picture, in the realm of biology, genetic variation is a super important thing. This is because it gives species a better chance of surviving if something catastrophic happens and wipes out a large portion of the population. There are a ton of examples of like why genetic variation is important um, throughout different species of the world. But with corals, one really cool thing is that some corals um, have genes that give them higher temperature tolerance than others. So the Great Barrier Reef is massive, right? It spans over 1,400 miles in Australia. It's a huge ecosystem and it's very dynamic, right? So there are different areas, regions of the Great Barrier Reef that have different environmental conditions. The north end of the Great Barrier Reef generally tends to not be as hot or it cultivates corals that have higher heat tolerance. So when it does get hotter, those corals tend to survive more. So coming back to that heat wave that I just mentioned a little bit ago, researchers are actually taking coral colonies from the north end of the Great Barrier Reef with that gene for high temperature tolerance setting up artificial colonies in labs and breeding them with more vulnerable individuals collected from like the south end of the Great Barrier Reef because corals on the south end are more susceptible to um, dying when the temperature of the water gets too hot. Kind of cool, right? It's like science manipulating genetics of corals to kind of give them genes that would make them more heat tolerant, which is something that we're definitely going to need with climate and ocean acidification and ocean warming. Um, if you remember, like there were massive bleaching events that occurred in 2016, 2017, and even last year in 2020. So if you remember seeing pictures of miles and miles of completely white coral just a few years ago and like lost all hope like I did, hopefully this restores just a fraction of that hope. All right, so we just talked about corals in the ocean, but now let's move on to land with this next case study. All right, so this next case study also has to do with reproductive phenology of a certain species, but this time we're on land and we're talking about pollen and trees. And side note, this may be good information for my friends with allergies out there. We're talking about the annual release of pollen in oak trees, which if you didn't know, oak trees are actually on Healthline's list of worst pollen offenders, are also known as one of the sources of pollens that cause the most allergies. I didn't know that, that was new to me. <laughs> The synchronized release of seeds in plants is known as masting, but in order for seeds to be produced, pollination must be successful. So let's talk about oak tree pollination. Oak trees are known as wind pollinators, which means that they depend on the wind for successful fertilization, aka bringing male sex cells to female sex cells, and that is how we get acorns. So um, I have a quick question for you. Uh, have you ever wondered what pollen really is? Have you ever stopped to think? What is it about pollen that just makes me so allergic to it? Well, I kind of had bad news for you or good news if you like knowing plant facts. 
As it turns out, pollen is actually the male sex sale or gay meat of an oak tree. Yep, that's right. Pollen is effectively tree sperm. Uh, (laughs) Moving on. The reason why oak trees produce so much pollen is that wind pollination can kind of be hit or miss. They make a lot of it because at least some of it has to make it to the female parts of an oak tree, right? Um, Also, do you want to know another weird fact about oak tree reproduction? Of course you do. Um, So oak trees are actually monoecious, meaning they have both male and female sex organs on the same tree. We've already determined that male part, the male part is pollen, which is released from stamens. That's the actual male reproductive organ of the flower. Um, But if you look in an oak tree, you may notice these little structures that almost look like little tassels that droop down from oak tree branches. Well, those are called catkins, and they're essentially a cluster of male flowers whose purpose is to shed the pollen that the wind carries to the female flowers. And the female part uh, of an oak tree are these tiny little flowers that are called pistillates. And when they are fertilized by male pollen, they mature and develop into acorns. And okay, I know you're probably thinking, if an oak tree has both male and female parts on the same tree, does it just breed with itself? Is it technically asexual reproduction? No. Even though male and female parts are available on the same tree for oak trees, they do tend to just breed with other trees, other individuals. So they're still sexually reproducing. Okay, so now that we're all more informed on the sex organs of oak trees than we ever needed to be, (laughs) let's get back to phenology. So another question. What triggers the release of pollen in oak trees? A major hypothesis in scientific literature is quite simple. It's temperature. Studies have concluded that temperature is a driving factor of synchronized pollen release, and this determination is called the microclimatic hypothesis, which is just a fancy way for saying that temperature is the reason that pollen is released. But the specific paper I'm citing for today's episode has actually proposed a different explanation. The paper I'm reading from is called What Drives Phenological Synchrony, Warm Springs Advance and Desynchronized Flowering in Oaks. And like always, any sources and reference material that I use in the making of this episode are linked in the show notes. So the authors of this paper are proposing that it's not just temperature that triggers the release of pollen in oak trees, but rather it's actually an interaction between temperature and day length. Specifically, the author's conclusions found evidence to support that variation in individuals' trees' sensitivity to day length is the phenological cue that triggers the pollination event. So, there's a fancy word for everything in science. These authors called their findings the photoperiod sensitivity hypothesis. And photoperiod is just a fancy term for day length. (sighs) Okay, so let's take a pause real quick and ask, why is this all even important? Well, as phenology suggests, it's all about timing. If a male flower on an oak tree releases pollen before a female flower on another tree is developed, fertilization literally cannot occur, which means that acorns won't be developed, which means they cannot be eaten by other species that depend on them for food, and they can't be dispersed around the forest for new tree growth and new oak forests. I mean, think about it. Imagine you are a mama squirrel and you just had babies in the spring, and you're going around doing your squirrely thing, trying to find food, acorns, and you realize, huh, there's not as many as there normally are this time of year. Uh, that's not good. That means there's less food for your babies, less chance of survival. 
So this idea of species being out of rhythm between themselves or other species that depend on them is called desynchronization. And like I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's a major concern in the study of phenology as climate change progresses and potentially causes more of it. Basically, one species cannot be examined in isolation. You have to think about other species that it interacts with and that it depends on. Okay, second question here. What does this all mean for the future of oak forests? Well, the short answer is that it kind of depends. There are two hypotheses here, and the predictions of both hypotheses are actually very contradictory. Um, if your team microclimatic hypothesis from the study, which suggested that temperature is the major phenological driver for oak tree pollination, the prediction is that it will actually be less frequent desynchronization um, between oak trees and less reproductive failures between oak trees. This is because the authors found that years with warmer spring temperatures were correlated with longer oak tree flowering time. AKA, the hypothesis suggests that if temperature keeps rising with global warming, the reproductive season of oak trees will simply just last longer, which decreases the chance of desynchronization or kind of negates the chance for desynchronization. On the other hand, if you're on team photo period sensitivity hypothesis, these are some lame team names, aren't they? Just like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but this hypothesis says that temperature and individual sensitivity to day length is the major phenological driver for pollen release. The prediction is the actual complete opposite of the other one. <laughs> the prediction is that there will be increasing rates of desynchronization between oak tree pollination release. Um, so basically just meaning that trees will start releasing pollen erratically and out of time with each other. And um, here's the kicker, which is usually the kicker of science. We really don't know which hypothesis is true. The authors of this study that I've been citing point out that there is a need for experiments and observation of pollen release of individual oak trees to determine the true cause. The bottom line here is that it's not a good outlook for the future of oak trees, or at least an uncertain future going ahead. As we determine, desynchronized flowering between different oak trees literally completely vetoes reproduction, right? So if a male pollen is released before female flowers are um, even developed, then fertilization literally can't happen, right? Or vice versa, whatever, however it works. Um, and this just leads to more random and failed patterns of reproductive success. So in all, you know, so far, while corals may be on the comeback, oak trees may be on the decline. All right, we've been through two of our case studies together. Let's journey through this final one. This last case study is inspired by two things. Number one, because it's an example that was used in the class that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, so I had some reference material for it. And number two, well, the name of this species we're going to talk about is just kind of funny. So to end off this episode, we're going to be talking about the great American tit. So <laughs> I was planning to say that without laughing while recording this episode, but um, uh, yeah, I failed. <laughs> The great American tit is a bird. Um, it is a cute little bird, actually. It has white cheeks, and it's surrounded by, like, a black head and neck. And it has this black stripe going down the middle of its belly. And then on the uh, opposite sides of the black stripe is, like, yellow. 
Its feathers also range in color from gray to white to blue to green. So it's kind of multicolored, cute little bird. The great tit belongs to the chickadee family and it is found in North America. I believe I saw that it's in Michigan and the Great Lakes. Um, and it's also like literally so um, abundant in Eurasia, across Eurasia. It usually begins looking for a mating partner in January and it lays eggs in May or April. It's not a migratory bird, but it does rely on certain environmental cues to trigger the onset of its breeding season. One of these environmental cues doesn't have a name, but in general, it's thought to be the bird's ability to time reproduction just right so that there is synchrony between new chicks being born and food availability, aka like insect emergence, right? And by now, if you heard the word synchrony and you thought phenology, you would be correct. The reproductive cycle of the great tit is yet another thing that might be affected by climate change. Okay, so I mentioned that this case study came from when I was in my class, right? So when we were talking about this, my professor had put up this figure uh, from the paper that I'm referencing for today's episode. Um, he put it up on the projector, right? And it really encapsulates what the issue at hand for the great tit is. And since you can't see the figure, obviously, we're listening to a podcast now, um, I'm going to try my best to describe it to you. So... The figure has two graphs with the same set of axes, and they're side by side. The y-axis is unlabeled, but the x-axis represents time. Time progresses as you move from the left to the right of the graph. At the top of the figure, there is an arrow also pointing left to right, and it says climate change, meaning that the effects of climate change progress as you move from the left to the right of the graph. So let's focus on this first graph on the left. This first graph represents the typical reproductive life cycle of the great tit with very little effects of climate change because remember we're on the left of that climate change arrow. It is labeled match. There's a blue dotted line that is shaped like a little mountain. There are two icons on this dotted line. There's a little sun and there's a nest of eggs, which represent the beginning of spring and the egg laying season for the great tit. The fact that they're on the same line means that they are in sync with one another. If you move a little to the right of this blue dotted line on the same graph is another dotted line and it's green. It's also shaped like a little mountain and it has an icon of a caterpillar which represents the emergence of insects that the chicks of the great tit consume as food. So right above this green dotted line is a little icon of a nest of chicks. So it went from having a nest of eggs to a nest of chicks. So the green dotted line has the little icon of the caterpillar and the nest of chicks now, and they're right on top of each other, which also suggests that the hatching of the great tit chicks is in sync with the emergence of their insect food source. Yay, that is how it's supposed to be. Okay, so that was the graph on the left. Now let's turn our attention to the second graph on the right. It's a completely new graph. This one is labeled Mitch Match. This graph has the exact same elements, right? So there's still a blue and green dotted line. There's still the icons of the sun, the nest of the eggs, the nest of the chicks, and the caterpillar. Except this time, the placement of these elements are all out of sync with each other. So the nest of the eggs and the sun are still together. So they're still in sync. So the eggs are still being laid at the beginning of spring. But as time progresses to the right of the graph, the icon of the nest of chicks comes before the icon of the caterpillar. This suggests that as time and climate change progresses, the chicks of the great tit are being born before the insects emerge. 
Okay, so if I've done even a decent job at explaining this figure, which I hope I have, you'll quickly see what the problem is. The chicks will starve before the insects that they depend on emerge. Like, let's picture it. A picture that you're a little great tit chick and you're coming out of your nest you just hatched and you're looking at your mom like mama great tit and you're like hey mom i'm hungry where's food and she's like um there's no insects right now wait a couple weeks until they come out of the ground um i'm gonna starve mom thanks for nothing <laughs> um this is just another example of desynchronization at play when it comes to life cycles and reproductive cycles and again, it also shows that thing that I mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about um, corals is like, it shows that there is no one species that you can examine in isolation without also considering other species that it depends on or either interacts with for survival. So as the saying goes, whether you're a bird or coral or an oak tree, one way or another, we're all in this together. All right, friends. Well, those are the three case studies that I wanted to walk through today, talking about phenology and reproduction and temperature and climate change and flowers and all kinds of things. I wanted to finish today's episode by just briefly summarizing why phenology is really, truly so important. And I just wanted to talk about how it's being used in conservation. So as we discovered, understanding the phenology of reproductive cycles of species can be massively important. All three case studies that we talked about today involve reproductive timing for three different species, including all the different factors that influence them. Without all this information, we wouldn't even have a clue about the life cycle of these species. Nor will we be able to do kind of like an intersectional analysis and figure out if climate change is changing or negatively impacting any of these species' life cycles. While I was preparing for this episode, I actually read a decent portion of the book called Phenology, an Integrative Environmental Science. And phenology is quite literally just that. It's integrative, intersectional, and it's a scientific study. It can be used as a vital tool for ecosystem management and species conservation efforts as we have talked about with corals and the oak trees and the great tit. Although the great tit's actually not endangered, which was a breath of fresh air to get from information to get from Google. Yeah, so great tit's not endangered, but it might be if it continues to be out of sync with its food source. Anyway, phenology can also be used as a platform for education and outreach and science translation, as I've actually kind of attempted to do with this podcast. And lastly, phenology is a huge focus for citizen science efforts in the form of phenological monitoring. For like, okay, so for example, if you're a bird watcher and you take notes about what kind of birds you see and at what time of year you see them and like how long they're there, congratulations, you are literally conducting phenological monitoring that can be very valuable for conservation efforts for those birds if they're needed in the future. There are dozens and dozens of phenology networks across North America that you can research and be involved in data collection and analysis efforts for. If you're interested in learning more, um, Google USA National Phenology Network. Um, and I also included a figure from the book that I just mentioned that literally lists all these different phenological monitoring organizations and their websites for more information if you want to get involved with monitoring for a certain species. I know there's some for sea turtles, there's some for birds, there's some for specifically monarch butterflies and their migratory paths. Um, that list is really valuable and you can see if they want any help, any citizen science help, any data collection help, and things like that. So there's a world of opportunity in this particular scientific discipline and quite honestly, it excites me a lot. 
All right, friends. Well, that was all I had for this episode. Hopefully you have learned something new with me today. You learned a little bit about life cycles and all those kind of things. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time. Bye, everybody.